0: Welcome to another segment of Beyond the Grassy Knoll. We have with us uh, somebody has been with us, been with us for uh, several hours before, and it's, it's you know we do a lot of stuff that, that has a heaviness to it for obvious reasons. We do some shows that have a little entertainment value, uh, and with this individual, it has been pretty much fun and entertainment. We're going to take a little turn in a sense because what we're going to cover today, although uh, comes under um, the genre about which he writes. Uh, It's a little fun, but this one gets a little serious, and I'm not going to uh, keep the suspense going any longer. With us again is John Kenneth Muir. Uh, John, thanks a lot for being with us.
1: Thank you for having me on again. It's a pleasure.
0: And I will tell you that when my quarterly comes out, a entitled uh, Inside the Knoll, um, you were in the ten top uh, interviews um, over the seven years.
1: Thank you. I I really enjoyed being on your show, Keith. Thank you.
0: Now that's the bad news. <laughs> but uh, the reason why is because when we did that show about one step beyond, I can't tell you how much fun I had. There was a, a kind of a warm, you know, nostalgic, uh, melancholy thing happening there, which was very, very comfortable. But also to talk about what we really believed, the both of us separately, because that's how I came upon you, was right. to find out some to find that somebody else. Remembered that show at least, or at least researched it and found out um, and, and shared with the audience just what I think a well produced show that was.
1: Right, it's a classic, there's no doubt about it. And you had a great memory for uh, many of those episodes, which just astounded me. Just astounded me. Well, that's the, the impact
0: it made on me because, you know, that was the memory of uh, a seven or eight year old, maybe nine. But those shows, I mean, I will tell you, honestly scared the bejeebers out of me. And I'm not saying I had nightmares, but they made an impression that, of obviously, lasted you know, all these years. Right. But we're going to shift gears now, and what we're going to look at is something else that you've treated in the work you've done. And it's let's get to it. I mean, it's the Millennium series. But I want to say something, John. I mean, I've I've capitalized you biographically as somebody who's a researcher and an, an author uh, on and of what we would call the horror genre in T V and movies. Are you okay with that or
1: Absolutely, that's exactly right. I, I'm I, I'm a I'm a critic but I, I also I, you know, critic implies being negative, and I'm very positive about the kind of things that good horror can do. So, I, I prefer to see myself just like you said, as sort of a chronicler of the genre, and okay. a, you know, a, I, I try to take a, um, a more scholarly look at it than some people who just like look at gore or something like that. I try to look at you know what the what the meaning is underneath. So, I'm very comfortable with how you describe me,
0: and also uh, Millennium. Uh is, some, is, is a series that he has written about and is included in a book entitled Terror Television, and it right. deals with American, uh, American horror genre series from 1970 to 1999. Is that correct? That's right. That's All right. right. Now, the one thing I'll say about Millennium is I will tell you um, I'm in the process of watching it a second time. I don't know why, but this second time, it's been a lot heavier and darker and less comfortable than it was when we, when my wife and I watched it, uh, you know, the first time through. I don't know why that is, but I find it sometimes tough slogging emotionally to get through. I think they did an excellent job with their characterizations. Um, I think it was a well-done series. Only lasted three years, 67 episodes, I believe. Right. Um, let me ask you this. What struck you about Millennium? I mean, you might have had to cover it for the purpose of uh, that book, but since you did, lay it out for you, if you would, on, a, on an overall uh, uh, level, just what got you about Millennium.
1: Well, you know, Millennium, you know, I, I was introduced to Millennium as sort of we, we all were. The X-Files was enormously popular in the mid-90s, and, and along comes the second series from Chris Carter, the creator of the X-Files. And You know, the X-Files wasn't just big at that point. It was a phenomenon. And so along comes this second series, Millennium. And it was a little bit like cold water on the face the first time you watch it because the X-Files, for all of its its brilliance, its scariness, its intelligence also has a very welcoming sense of humor. There, there, There's a sense of lightness even when they're dealing with scary things, you know, that Mulder will quip or something. You know, you have the relationship of Mulder and Scully as the sort of prime thing to hold on to. And Millennium, which I think drew a lot of people probably away from the series when it aired, um, did not have that leavening effect Of humor to the degree that the X Files did, and Millennium, I like to say, is sort of almost a pure work of art, um, where it's like the considerations of like how comfortable it is for the audience don't apply. (laughs) You know, you don't, you don't even see that. (laughs) Um, You know, they really don't. It's really not considered. It, It is, it is one of the most sort of pure visions of a. Creative talent, I think that we've had on television in many years, and you know, I mean that in a very complimentary way. I think it's 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 a brilliant show, but you know, the way I came to it was expecting, oh, we're going to get another um, show like The X Files. And, of course, it was not like The X-Files, and nor should it have been like The X-Files, because had it been, we all would have said it was a copy of The (laughs) X-Files. So so it was good that Millennium established its own identity immediately, but I was one of those foolish people who watched seven or eight episodes on the original run and thought, this is a little bit too grim and dark for me, and I'm going to leave. I returned to Millennium uh, later on, and I thought, how did on earth... Did I miss all of these things going on on this show? All, all of this sort of, you know, th- this brilliance, this vision of the world, this consistency, um, the 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 um, the skill of the actors, the um, you know, the great visualizations, all of these things that make Millennium so wonderful. You know, you 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 have to be sort of uh, of the right mindset to go into it, really. You know, and 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 in the heyday of the '90s, where you know every other show was an X Files. Um, uh you know sort of show we had like Strange World and Prey and the Burning Zone and Nowhere Man- you know everything was sort of trying to pick up on the the uh, X-Files um you know Mojo you know it was easy for Millennium to get lost now on retrospect that was like exactly the wrong thing to happen. So I, I was one of those people who missed Millennium the first time. And when I started watching it in later seasons, I said, I have to go back and see all these. And, and I mean, I'm I'm totally in love with the show. I, t- I totally think the show is great. And, you know, the way I think you feel about One Step Beyond, I wonder if, you know, kids today or, you know, 10 years ago will be saying in 30 years that they remember Millennium because these episodes stuck with them in such a way.
0: Yeah, and they both were brief series and they burned brightly while they were there. Yeah. Uh, the one thing I will say, and I had looked on that w- um, website, uh, IMDB, right. Internet Movie Database, IMDB.com, and whoever wrote something there, a summary said, uh, he started off by saying he, he was a little confused. And I didn't spend a lot of time there because I didn't want to hear anybody else's opinion, but I had to <laughs> take a, look at, a second look at what that individual started off with because I do find this. Now, I've seen it three times, more or less, the first time when it was on, and I was not in the same frame of mind I am now, not that I've gone mental, but, I mean, I look at the world differently. Right. Two, I watched it through with the box series, and now I'm going through it again. Right. And it does start, it, you know, it's one of Chris Carter's babies, and that's an interesting guy in his own right. Yeah. Uh, but it kind of suggests the apocalyptic, but it gives you kind of like really nasty serial killers in, in the down and a down-and-dirty stuff that that is anything but supernatural or portending of an apocalypse. Later that, I know changes. Right. Uh, so in a way, uh, you know, I would look at them starting off with uh, quotations of Scripture, and it, it didn't deliver, in a sense, of any kind of scriptural revelation, be that as it may. Uh, we're going to talk about the first year, uh, and before we do, let me ask you this. Right. I will not trivialize Millennium by comparing it to this particular TV series, but I think in a sense, it's almost like television that was cinema, uh, cinema verite. Right. I found Miami Vice took some chances in the way that they framed their movie, the way they shot it. I right. thought it was very film-like, yeah. uh, and I thought it worked. I didn't really care too much for the show or for the, the, the characters, but I thought that visually they took a chance, and I thought it worked. I also think that Millennium, not necessarily took a chance, but that worked with the nuances of light and dark yes and really did a what i would call a, a theatrical or a film-like treatment of what is a television series
1: absolutely you know the series is incredibly cinematic i mean you you, you hit the nail on the head the, the visualizations are so important you know the way um you, you know frank's visions even appear you know being sort of these quick jarring cuts you know it, it's done in, in it, it's done very visually you know it, it it's a great thing you know, film and television are primarily visual art forms, but a lot of times, people, creators of shows, forget that. And what so what they do is they just have people standing around talking, and and they're telling you everything. You know, one of the things that I love about Millennium is that it it doesn't it doesn't necessarily just tell; it shows you. you it uses the visualizations the way you'd want a good movie to. Um, but you know, you you brought up an you know an interesting um, point that you know talking about. Um, Millennium, uh, you know, comparing it to Miami face that's right. There there is sort of that cinema aspect to it. And um, you know, for some of the listeners who may not know exactly what Millennium is, it you know, it was really one of the first, if not the first, sort of on a regular basis, profiler shows. You know, we've had many shows that sort of take off on aspects of Millennium, which are like C S I or Profiler or um I'm trying to think but you know, there are bunches, you know, there are a dime a dozen. Um Criminal Minds, I guess, would be another one. Um, but Millennium was one of the first, and and it you know it just for for your listeners it focuses on this character Frank Black. And when I started thinking about who is Frank Black, that's when I started to realize sort of how brilliantly and artistically constructed Millennium is. Because if if you look at the name Frank, I mean, you think what what does the word Frank mean? It, it, it means
0: yep.
1: scrupulous, honest, above board,
0: to the point, yeah.
1: Uh, real, you know, and and that is what Frank is. And then you couple that with black, you know, meaning dark, somber, grim, you know. And so what you have is somebody sort of being above board and honest about the darkness. And and then you look at Lance Henriksen's portrayal, oh. which I think is one of the most brilliant portrayals in all of television history of a character. There's no there's no movie or TV BS about him. No, he he, he is just who he is, and he does what he does, and. And Lance Hendrickson is so subtle an actor, he he doesn't pull attention to himself with um, histrionics and sort of silliness and things like that. He's just... He, he's just very focused. And and if you look at that, how even the name of the character is constructed and how the character behaves, you start to realize how artistically constructed the show is. And you can go on and on and just talk about those kind of symbols in the show.
0: But but don't you think uh, – of course, that's, here's a leading intro. Don't you think? <laughs> you better think. I can agree with you. No, But, I mean, you look at, you look at the character uh, that Lance Henri- Henriksen played. I think it's to his credit as a true actor – that he allowed himself to be portrayed as worn and tired and pained. Because mm-hmm. his you know, the way they shoot his face and such, it's always creased. It right. does not show him in a in a shall we say, not that he's not a handsome man, but he does not look like an attractive guy in this. Right. And right. of course he's juxtaposed to his wife, who's like this Irish, you know, winsome woman. <laughs> and the child is absolutely Amazing. I mean, yeah. you know. Yeah. But yeah. I wanted to say something to you, and I'm going to throw it back to you, and that is the way that, that Henriksen remo- acted, the way he was seemingly always pained, the only time I've seen anything that I thought that had that depth was The Fugitive with David Jansen's mm. where the guy was just always tired. He was a good guy. He figured he was up against it. And Henriksen, right. you know, I would say even, even trump that, that performance. But I had not seen anything like that uh, since from Jansen's portrayal of that, of the character in the fugitive uh, well, you know, with this by Henriksen. I think he did a great job and allowed himself to be, let's put it this way, um, not put in such an attractive light to make the character that much more believable.
1: I think you're exactly right. I mean, I think that's a very interesting comparison. And again, you know, I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, do anything that, you know, suggests I'm speaking negatively of the X-Files because I love the X-Files. But again, you know, what a complete change yeah. from we have these two beautiful leads. You know, David Duchovny and Gillian Anderson are both gorgeous and interesting in, in their own ways and, and vigorous and young, you know. <laughs> yeah, and they're, and they're you know?
0: garrulous and loquacious where Frank right. Black talks with a, a terseness of verbiage. Yes, yes
1: you got it exactly. That's it. And he is such, it's such a breath of fresh air. We we just love, my wife and I, we watch the show, and we'll just love it when he, you know, sometimes he'll just say something flat out that, you know, you wish you could say, but he doesn't say it with attitude. He doesn't say it, you know, sarcastically or snarkily. When he says something, it's fact. When he says something, it's true. He's very, he's very authentic. And I think Lance Henriksen is is brilliant at that. And I love his face. I mean, I, I, you know, I agree with you. He looks very worn, but the, 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 the wear on that face is so interesting it, it, it's so fascinating to watch those eyes are so interesting oh, yeah. to watch you, and, you know,
0: know it, what it reminds you of too is that he doesn't have to say it because on certain occasions, not a lot because the guy's not judgmental but you can you can see him look at somebody who's kind of took them off and you, can, and you can just see him saying asshole
1: Right, right but he
0: doesn't have to say it
1: no he does and and and, and the speed with which he moves on and conducts his business yeah. i mean you know he 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 doesn't stop and linger on inconsequences there's nothing inconsequential about this man you know he's there to do what he does he's he, and he's not going to trifle with with nonsense you know and and you know that just comes across so clearly and again it goes back to his name you know to scrupulous above board honest forthright i mean he's all those things you know and in such an interesting way
0: Well, I'll tell you what, again, um, this time around I'm going to let you leave me by the nose. Uh, I just wanted to get a couple things in only because this is the first time we can ever do it a first time. Right. And to set up the characters of at least Lance Henriksen, um, again, uh, his wife, the the child. And I'm only going to say one other thing is I think this character morphs. I consider it a morph with him and the Millennium Group and all that. And that, what is that? Terry O'Quinn is that his name?
1: Yes, Peter Watts. That's right.
0: You know what? And I tell you, I don't know if this is true or not, but I'm going to say this. I was I was a mustache wearer. As I know you have been, or are you still?
1: Yes. Yeah, I am. I got a goatee. Okay. Yep.
0: <laughs> well, I always had the uh, the real thick uh, walrus mustache, and and um, uh, Terry O'Quinn has what I call a rat mustache. And I know that this is strictly me, and I'm sorry if I'm insulting anybody. But people who wear mustaches like that, I think, in a film or TV, are portraying themselves, and it's a clue that I'm a rat. (laughs) I'm sorry. I know it's a Clark Gable job, but who said he wasn't a rat either? (laughs) Well,
1: you know, it's it's very interesting. Again, a very interesting observation because you you know, there's so many different ways to look at Millennium, and you know, if you look at the three seasons, the the first season being um Frank's introduction to the group and a character like Peter Watt and then the second you know and and, it's, and it and it's fairly positive i mean he, he terrible things happen but he you know he, his alliance with the group is strong and with Peter Watt's is strong in the second season he knows more about the group and that connection becomes ambiguous and Peter Watts becomes a little bit more ambiguous, um, yes, yes. and then, and then in the third year, he's you know, at, Prank is absolutely at war with the Millennium Group, and and there you see Peter Watts as being, you know, doing all of these dastardly things. Although I I, I think that, um, you know, I think the character still had some core of of decency I don't think he always liked doing what he did I mean you know we can and when we get to those needs yeah, we should talk yeah. about that that's that's a good that's that's a good point but that's fine so the the uh, mustache as indicator of villainy for hearing yeah it's, it's,
0: a, it's the rat stash. <laughs> <laughs> alright so anyway um, I'm only gonna stop you so we can talk about your website and the books so uh, if you want to hit it in any kind of chronological order uh, all right, by well, all means
1: one of the other things I wanted to talk sure. about was um, Again, some of the symbols and the construction of the show, because I think it's just so Good. incredibly layered and intelligent how the show was conceived in the first place. You know, one of the symbols, and I mentioned, uh, we talked about this before off the, um, you know, off the air, but the, the yellow house. Frank has a yellow house. Um, it's on Ezekiel Drive, and it's, you know, a beautiful, you know, idyllic, large yellow house. And of course, the color yellow um, represents harmony uh... you know and and usually harmony where conflict is all around and so you know at least on some surface level you know that what that's saying is that frank views his home life you know his daughter his wife his house you know as the fulcrum for his happiness that that that's where he is happiest that is the harmony for him amidst the conflict of his life and you know globally the the um... the yellow house is very symbolic i think of frank's journey across the years uh... in the first season when frank is now frank recovered from a nervous breakdown at some point but now he is ostensibly whole again and the house represents the idea of paradise Uh, in the second season when again we're going into more ambiguous territory um things are not good with uh catherine his wife and he's forced to leave the yellow house so at that point the house symbolizes sort of the quest the thing Frank is fighting to retake. And by the time we get to the last year of Millennium, the house only appears in one episode. Um, and at that point, it's sort of paradise lost. So again, I think that, you know, one of the c- core key settings of Millennium is is Frank's home. Um, and, and I think it's significant that it's yellow. Um, I, I think that that's, uh, you know, it's the color of intellect as well. Um, it contrasts very strongly with black. So again, you have Frank black and you have the yellow house. I, I just can't... Yeah imagine that that is simply a coincidence that, you know, we have yellow and black contrasted and together. I think it's very important, the color of the house and and, and what that represents for um,
0: for Frank. Well, being yellow, it almost radiates light even in the nighttime. It's almost like a bright spot in the nighttime. Right. Uh, Yellow, too, as you said, is the color of sunlight, and he has to do a lot of work in the darkness or, forgive me, blackness. Uh, of, um, of the of the twenty four hour day, the other thing I think uh, I found is that he, it almost was like some kind of Greek tragedy. In a sense that they go to Seattle, the house is his castle. I mean, truly, they're happy there. But because of what he does, it's almost like evil found them because of Frank.
1: Right. And he of it course, with
0: them. at the end of that first year, the house has now been violated
1: right and Absolutely. it's
0: almost like frank has to in, in like a, a biblical type of way if, if the demon has invested him he has to leave you know not necessarily jump off a cliff or anything like that but he almost has to leave to take the evil with him
1: i, I think you really hit one of the you know the the important concepts you know that's very much the crux of the show the idea that wherever frank goes this goes with him yeah. you know part the darkness is part of frank um... you know that's how he's able to see these things, that's how he's able to have these visions, to be his, his ability to tap into that darkness. And you know, you might say that you know, we all have some sense of darkness and it's just sort of how willing are you to go there? And and the, you know, the, I don't want to say saintly, but you know, to use religious metaphor, you know, the saintly thing about Frank is that he goes he goes there, he goes to that dark yeah. place in himself, but he does it for other people. He, do, he does it for the people he's trying to help, he does it for the people he loves, so there's something you know almost sacrificial about it um and it's you know you know i i find it enormously affecting um you know that, that you know he all, all he wants is to be happy he you know he wants to pretend the world is okay but you know that the, the world is always breaking in on him just like we're, you said
0: and we we let well we are to believe that he was gifted yes and of course the problem with this is it's it's a, a double edged gift it's both a, a, a blessing and a curse right and here exactly. you see that i guess that conflict taking place in him he he's a good enough individual to stay in the fray uh, but it comes at a tremendous cost as we see in the movie i can't really say it had a real happy ending you know the whole series
1: right oh absolutely and uh, i think that's true i think like so much of one the end the ending is very ambiguous uh that uh you know, we're, we're always left with sort of a lot of questions. But again, that's very much like life. We don't always get the that's answers right. to the the questions. You know, that the answers we seek, we don't always get them. You know, and if you're if you're looking at Millennium Two, you know, the the core idea of it. I mean, it, it's a funny thing. But when I, w- I was you know preparing for this show, I was thinking, you know, there's this thing that you know, I, there's probably another name for it, but I've been calling it um, the Gulliver Travel Syndrome, which is, you know, after Gulliver's Travels, there's there's this idea that in that book that. Uh, every new country that Gulliver visits is some reflection of the author's interpretation of the England he lived in. Uh, lived in. Just like on Star Trek, every planet that the USS Enterprise goes right. to is 60s America, you know? And it's funny to say this because it's so easy to miss. But Millennium, you know, Frank is investigating serial killers. Those serial killers are like the planets in Star Trek or the places Gulliver visits. Each one of them becomes our way of seeing America in the 1990s. You know, it's very interesting. It's so easy to dismiss it, as I did originally after watching seven or eight of these things, say, oh, it's Serial Killer of the Week. You know, I wasn't looking deeper. I was like, oh, he's going after another serial killer. I'm bored, you know. and. I, I wasn't seeing what was really there, which was the fact that Chris Carter and the writers and directors of the show were using the idea of the serial killer to tell us something about us, who we were in the 1990s. And, you know, one of the key things that they were working on was this notion of millennialism, uh, that, uh, you know, it, it's this feeling um, that comes, you know, at the end of a thousand years. People think it's going to be the end of the world. It's apocalypse. Um you know, uh it's a cycle. We believe that the millennium brings a cycle of destruction and cataclysm. Um, millennialism tends to look at the world in terms of the status quo being corrupt or rotten or in need of change. And, you know, this was very appropriate um, for the 1990s, not only because, of course, it was the change of the millennium, but because there were a lot of people who thought... Um, that we are, were a corrupt people. That you know, we had a president. Um, I mean, I, I don't have any problem with Bill Clinton. I'm not saying I think he's a bad person or anything like that. But there are a lot of people who looked at him and said he he's a corrupt person. You know, he's he's mired in scandal. There's all this stuff. You know, it, it's there's go, there's going to be a reckoning for this. You know, we're going to pay for this. Uh, what's happening? And you know, so Millennium kind of tapped into that idea. With um, you know this one-two punch of the idea of the ser- serial killers reflecting us, and then the idea that we're at this delicate sort of crossroads in time where all these things we look at them separately, but together they mean something. It's yeah. that, this is this is who we are. You know, the, which is one of the taglines of the show, which is that there's this corruption and insanity and darkness and scandal all around us and something terrible is going to happen. It's going to bring about the end of the
0: world. John, uh, I, if I could <coughs> excuse me I, I would just throw in, first of all um, being politically correct here is, is not necessary. <laughs> I mean uh, myself and those who listen to the show know that Clinton sucked and the Bushes sucked, all presidents sucked <laughs> but here's where I'm going to go and Carter knows what's going on. Chris Carter you know, and of course the Millennium Group uh, which he didn't mind having known when he did some of the uh, bonus uh, coverage things that you get in the box series. Right. uh, That it's based on a group of supposedly, quote, retired FBI agents who kind of have to take care of things. And it leaves that very open-ended. But now, having said that, what I would say is that you're right. It isn't only just uh, Clinton, but I think what it shows us is that the whole shebang is is politically corrupt. We make believe it isn't. And somewhere in between lies the shadow right so I mean I I think that we're being told we all know the system doesn't work and our figureheads and, and everything and even justice to a certain extent is is baloney and and so you have these knights like and I mean knights with a K uh, right. like Frank black you know who has to uh, you know fight against tilting windmills.
1: Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that's it exactly. You know, and, and if you go down like through sort of the list of episodes in, in the first season and, and look at the the cases Frank handles, you see that each one deals with something really specific, contextually, as to what was happening in the '90s. I mean, um, there's an episode called "Weeds," and what it's about is. Um, a serial killer inside an exclusive gated community, a very wealthy gated community right. now this was a very new thing in the nineties these gated communities, but the serial killer who was killing in the gated community was doing it um, to expose the hypocrisy of the people who'd made all the money and who had the fancy houses. Right. <laughs> you know one was an adulterer, um, one was a thief, uh, one had killed a child in a hit and run accident right. a- and so again. You know, you think, oh, I'm just on the surface. I'm just watching, you know, a retired policeman chase down a serial killer. But what we're really seeing here is something about America, about us, about the idea that, um, you know, it's not always the just who are wealthy, and that, and that um, when we when we plant corruption, it comes up as weeds in our backyard. I mean, to you know, to be very literal. Um, you know, that that that's one example of like using a '90s trend, like the gated communities. To, to say something about us.
0: And they leave you with a creepy feeling, and, and rightfully so, that it, it leaves people who live in gated communities with the uh, queasiness that those gates can't keep out the bad guys.
1: Absolutely. they have. It, it's very funny. I mean, the, the episode is written by um, Frank Spotnitz, who I think is a, a terrific writer. He did many uh, X-Files and Millennium. And um, you know, there's a lot of dialogue in that episode about um, about like the walls. You know, it's it's like it's like the, the Berlin Wall. And I said, well, you know, we let's go. You know, let's let's walk the perimeter. You right, know, and right. they have 24-hour security. You know, they have their own little police force in there. You know, it's the idea of oh, we're we're going to huddle down in this very expensive, affluent place, and and we're protected and we're safe. But but we're not safe from ourselves. And that's where the the corruption comes up and that's where the weeds come up it's in the people who are already there again it's it's this idea of you go to escape something but if you bring yourself with you 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 know you you bring your you, the corruption you you're bringing the dark qualities of yourself um as well um so that that's i mean that that's one episode i really like um but you know you can you can go right through and 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 see how they do things like this. There, there's an episode called um, "Loin Like a Hunting Flame," yep. which is a great title, and it's uh, it's one of my favorite shows. It's it, because it's about sexual dysfunction. It's about a husband who sort of can't um, you know have relations with his wife, and so he he kidnaps all of these young people and sort of uh, poses them in sexual. Uh, yeah. i don 't know what the word is sexual display, so to speak um and again it, it, this is this is about the nineties it's it 's about you know this was the era of um Viagra. This is where Viagra, you know, first came into being. You know, everyone was talking about sexual dysfunction. Bob Dole, for God's sakes, was on the television after the <laughs> election in ninety six, telling us about, you know, erectile dysfunction, and you know, and and you know, all the Viagra jokes starting and everything. And and you know, this episode is like looking at that, but also at like the rave culture, which was new around this time. You know, the the rave culture started really becoming. Widespread uh, in the mid '90s, and you know that's—I believe—that's where this, the um, killer in this episode picks up some of his victims. So again, it, it you know it's picking up on these you know ideas that contextually are very significant to the '90s because the key to scaring you, you know, the key to being a good horror show is that you have to pick up on something that people are already a little afraid of, well, um, you know, yeah. or or that's new, well, like a rave or Viagra.
0: <laughs> also, I mean, speaking from a male point of view you could say that society has, has turned such through the last uh, 4 decades and to a certain extent and i'm not i'm not saying that i'm not saying there's good guys or bad women or good women and bad guys i'm just saying that what has happened is is that the male's role has been eviscerated or made impotent mm-hmm. and as a result what are you left with the only devi- the, the defining quality between yourself and a female is what's hanging between your legs Right. And if that doesn't work, what exactly are you? And I, so anyway, I, I'm you know I'm sorry to go into that whole thing, but no. there's always been the impotency card played in American well, culture, and especially since the '60s.
1: Well, I think that I think that is very much at what is the at the heart of of that story uh, in Millennium. This this man, he he's living what should be sort of the American dream as described and sold, but it's not really making him happy. Um, you know, and, and so he resorts to doing you know, very terrible things to try to find some aspect of self-fulfillment. Uh, when, I mean, it's, it's incredibly creepy. I'm not saying he's right to
0: do that. No, but, uh, you know. but obviously something's gone wrong there, and it's festered without any kind of uh, intervention. So now he's obviously, what else can it go? I mean, it's so like the story about heart of darkness. I mean, left to your own devices, it's hard for the flesh not to go completely corrupt. Right, and his right. wife can't figure out what's going on. I mean, so here we have you know some a woman who wasn't a, a eunuch maker, if you know what I mean, and right. and she has an occlusive. There's two victims right away. I mean, there's there's nobody wins in that situation.
1: Mm, absolutely, absolutely, and you know you can see that Millennium just again and again would would pick on ideas like this. Um, there was another one called Wide Open, uh, and it was about a serial killer who. Outsmarted um, new security systems. I mean, there was a time in America, and and Frank Black has a little lament about this in the episode, where people left their doors unlocked. You know, he says my grandparents left their doors unlocked. Well, in the '90s, suddenly every house has to have a security system. Um, and the idea of this killer was that he was going to expose the vulnerability of um, you know of alarm systems. Uh, you know, the idea of well, I just press a button and I'm safe. You know that's it's, it's not really so. Um, you know, and and the episode right. even ends with um, right. uh, the 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 dog. Uh, you know, the ultimate alarm system. Yeah, there's an alarm system that works. A big dog. <laughs> you know, t- taking down the killer. You know, it's like you know. So so there's a little quasi traditionalism there, saying you know, don't don't be relying on uh, you know your newfangled uh, 1990s machines to keep you safe, um, because there's a way around every machine. You know, if if you're worried about uh, crime, you know, get a dog because. The dog will help.
0: Also, you know, so. it, I think that ended very realistically. Although police would have to, for the sake of uh, PC, uh, deny it. But remember when that bad guy takes the tumble and and uh, what is it? Frank Black's asked, "What's what's the, uh, what's, the what's what's the uh, the rescue number nine because He goes, I, I can't remember it." Right. <laughs> so right. they let the creep yeah. die. That's what they do. Absolutely. Which I Absolutely. have to say, let's. I mean, in, in the streets, that's the way it goes. I mean, you know, do we really want you know? It, by the book, you can't admit this happens, but it happens, and the fact that Frank and the uh, the city investigator, the detective, just like, eh, well, we'll see if we can find the number, and the guy's right. broken as he bleeds out by the second. <laughs> hey, hold on a second. Let's do some business. Uh, again, we're with John Kenneth Muir, the website. Of course, that's always linked to the audio uh, of uh, the guests, not John's, but the guests. Uh, it's johnkennethmuir.com, and uh, again – John, tell us about the website, but also about the book uh, that includes what you feel is probably about a, a 40 page explication of this uh, a program.
1: Right, right. It's called uh, Terror Television, and it looks at American horror series from the span of 1970 to 1999. So basically, in that period, it covers, like, it starts with Rod Sterling's Night Gallery and goes all the way through the era of The X Files, Millennium, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and, you know, basically picks up everything in between, which is shows like Tales from the Dark Side, um, Werewolf. Uh, Twin Peaks, you know, things like that. I, I think there are something like 40, 40 shows covered in the book. Um, uh, you know, Kolchak, the Night Stalker is in there, um, things like that. But, it, you know, basically what I was doing, there was trying to look at what was the, you know, what was the format and, you know, what was the artistry of each one of those series. And, you know, some are great and some are terrible. And, you know, it's, it's, it's good. Millennium is really one of the great ones.
0: All right. And uh, how can they um – I uh, purchased that book, and that happened off your site, or you di- do you redirect them to um, uh, yeah, Amazon w- or anything?
1: I'd say go to Amazon to get it. The book is now available in a two-volume uh, paperback set, so it's a little less expensive. Originally, it was sort of a uh, a very large um, university-type uh, hardback, but now it's, it's available in a cheaper uh, two-volume set, and it's in the second volume where Millennium is covered uh, alongside other shows of the 90s.
0: Yeah, and I mean, a book like yours is such a joy to read. It, it, does it, is, is it part and parcel of escapism? Yeah, and there's nothing wrong with that. And it's also in, in kind of an episodic fashion also, so that, I mean, you can pick it up whenever you want to, and you're not going to be lost. You're not going to lose anything. You can get back in there and, and right. just enjoy it until the next time you pick it up. Well, so, I,
1: I hope so. You know, for me, you know, I've always I've always been highly suspect of the fact that, you know, so many... So many powerful and popular people um, in politics and in the culture are always so against horror. <laughs> so for me, I knew there had to be something good there. So I'm a big champion of horror. I think, you know, it's it's, it's it it is great escapism, but it also can really be a great commentary uh, on, on who we are. Uh, you know, and and like I said, you know, horror has a lot of very famous enemies, people who want to suppress it or who don't like it. You know, in the past, it's been the moral majority and such. And, you know, and Millennium, you know, really went up against that, too, is that it It, it went up against people who said it was needlessly uh violent and graphic and things like that. But if you look at the show, what it is, is it's a responsible depiction of violence,
0: uh, yeah, I would have to say, so. the thing um I think that there was a great protest against, and I mean, I have to say I wasn't interested either, and Siskel and Ebert were very vocal about this, and I have to applaud them for that, and and the coming out against all the teen slasher movies. Although, you know, you may have to treat that and that's not a problem, to me that really wasn't, well, I guess it was horror in a sense, but you missed the old terror suspense thing.
1: Uh, I see. Yeah, you know, but I, I again, you know, I, for for me, you know, and, I, and I, I, I can always agree with that, you know, the, the biggest problem with those movies is that they're not well made. <laughs> you know, most of them are bad. But, you know, yeah. you know now now that you can look back at them with 20 years, you know, of, of hindsight, say, did they really, you know, do any damage? You know, and I, I, I tend to think not. I don't know. Oh, no. You know,
0: now, and, and of course, you know the only one of the, the what I say? One of the redeeming qualities of it is like looking at Adrian Barbeau, <laughs> <laughs> while you rush to the next uh, uh, horror show. But I mean, the horror scene with uh, you know somebody popping up behind—that's what I think was it Ebert? Yeah, Ebert used to always go nuts. How yeah, many times do we up. have to see somebody popping up behind us? somebody <laughs> on the phone or looking around? It's like, come on, we've done this already, you know? It's great. But uh, I, I think uh, some of the best, I'll, I'll always feel this way, is the stuff that, that kind of churns your stomach because of the suspense. It's it's the, uh, the the closest shot of the turning doorknob, you know what I mean? Right, right. And, I, and that comes, I think, from uh, Hitchcock especially, but... Millennium you're right. I mean it it got a little gritty but it was not gratuitous. It was in the whole scope of the show. And later on now has been copied like in all these CIS shows and such. So
1: Absolutely. I mean, you know, if Chris Carter got a dime for, you know, every time Millennium was ripped off, you know, in the last 10 years, you know, if he I mean, he's already I'm sure a rich man, but he'd be even, you know, much richer, probably three times as rich. Uh, as he is now, because uh it seems like you know millennium had um you know the serial killer angle, it had the forensic angle, it even had a psychic angle, and it's funny you know it, it incorporated all those kind of things and it's it 's funny now you watch shows and you see. Th- They've not only, like, ripped off Millennium, but, like, they've, they've, they've cordoned off pieces of it. Like, if you want the psychic investigator, go watch Medium. If you want the forensic yeah, investigator, right. go see CSI. You know, they, 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 you know it's spun off, like, not just, you know, one kind of show. It's really spun off three or four kinds of shows. Um, you know, and that's, that's why I'd love to see, you know, some sort of return for Millennium, or at least acknowledgement that, you know, it was really a pioneering kind of show. All
0: right, and folks, again, remember, that's johnkennethmuir.com. That link will be up with the audio. Uh, take a look around, and uh, like I said, we done, we do a lot of shows uh, that predominantly are uh, not the happiest stuff, uh, although we're dealing with something serious, and it's kind of a bridge between both. Uh, it's still, uh, there's entertainment value there, and uh, really, I hate to say it, but probably one of the last well-done shows, and as far as I'm concerned. I think that they did that fastidiously.
1: Yes, yes, they did.
0: All right, so uh, pick us up where you want to go.
1: Well, um, another... Um interesting aspect of Millennium was the idea of um, end-of-the-world prophecies and we got we didn't get as much of that in the first season right. as we did in the second and third season but we did get one in the first season that where that started up uh, Brad Dorif called Force Major I guess if that's how you say it yep. um, and it was about a guy basically a cult of people who were sort of like building Noah's Ark they're expecting another great flood um and that was that event was supposed to happen in May of nineteen ninety eight if I recall correctly. Um so it was before then that, that it that aired. Um,
0: what well, was it the Hellbop? That was probably the Hellbop.
1: You know, I d I, I don't remember exactly what the event was, but I think it was tied to that. Yeah. And you know the, the oddest thing I remember was a chill that the day that that was supposed to happen I was ending up I ended up on a plane <laughs> going to flying to Canada. I thought, Oh my gosh, it's gonna be a great flood and I'm gonna be on a plane.
0: <laughs> but
1: it uh it 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 didn't happen um but but that was one end of the world story. There was another one later in the first season where there uh, there was a sort of a russian um idea of apocalypse coming around um and 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 um oh, that's where they
0: have the uh, the Russian bad guy supposedly as the antichrist
1: yes exactly oh, yeah, exactly yeah. so you know millennium also did you know these very interesting end of the world stories um and it went a little bit, you know, it left some of the serial killer terrain as it went on, and went more into those sort of uh, apocalyptic reckoning stories. You know, in the first year, there there seemed to be a quite a bit of focus uh, on scripture, on in particular the book of um, Revelation. You know, which is the last sort of canonical book of the New Testament. Um, you know, in the pilot episode of Millennium, there's a killer called the Frenchman who, you know, uh, he, you know is picking out quotes from Revelation, and uh, that's often and the case in the first year is that a lot of times the there there's a lot of biblical references um one of the one of my favorite episodes of millennium altogether is one that ha, that, that has some of those biblical references and it's called lamentation yep. and and it's the story that introduces uh Lucy Butler um and and, and again you have to uh, she, she appears in all three seasons she's yep. in an episode That's in right. every season and, and again, you have to look at how cleverly it's constructed, because of course, what, what is a butler but a servant? And, and of course, Lucy Butler is, you know, the servant of the devil, so to speak. And, uh,
0: yeah, Lucifer. Right.
1: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, it's great. So you got Lucifer and Butler, and you, you get it. You get it. Right. It's. But uh, at one point, she she sort of directs. Uh, she uses a biblical um, code to indicate to Frank that his house is under attack, and. Well, you know his his wife and child are at home, and i I'll, I'll tell you something I mean you talk about sheer terror yeah. um, that episode is one of the most frightening things i've I think i've ever seen on television or in film and I I watched it you know again recently to prepare and I was in bed watching it with my wife and she fell asleep and I was I was sort of the only one conscious <laughs> and it was terrifying I said I can't I can't watch this by myself you know the idea that this um, this strange killer is in the house and again there's this weird kind of thing where the killer seems to change shape um, you know it's it's a man it's a woman it's a demon you don't know what it is and. And and then most horrifically and, and boldly, again, for a television series in 1998 was that they killed off a regular character in that episode, um, yes. uh, Fr- Frank's friend Bletch. Again, you know, you just were not expecting that to happen. That at, never
0: happens in, in, in series, and yet, uh, as much as I was surprised, it, it was realistic, and, you know, usually it's it's probably contractual where guys don't want to get rubbed out of a series and such, you know, or... Uh you know, actors don't want to lose their meal ticket, but, okay. I mean, that was a sacrifice the show made, and I think that added to its uh, realism.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it, it lets you know that, you know, that the terror came home. The terror touched Frank's life. You know, it, it, Millennium isn't like sort of the old cop, or even to an extent some of the new ones where, you know, the idea is, you, you know, you face a really bad person for an hour, and, you know, and then you catch them, and you go home, and it's all over, and, it, and it's, you know, happy endings, and hugs, and puppies, and love, and all, you know, it, it's all just, you know, it's not, it's not like that, you know, what what you do in your life, you know, even if it's what you do on the job, it has repercussions in your personal life, and, you know, what Frank does, you know, dealing with these, you know, horrific and uh, frightening personalities, I mean, it, you know, it's natural, unfortunately, that it comes home, and, you know you see that a lot in the um the first season there's the subplot of the um the polaroid killer who keeps sending him polaroids of uh of his wife and little girl you know it's right. sort of you know in a plain envelope ends up through the mail slot and you know it's in his house again it just shows you how easily you know uh um you know your home your happiness can be invaded how easily your safety can be breached um you know but it's that, it, it's that concept of you know it follows you home you you can't you know, if you seek out the darkness, you know, the darkness seeks out you, I guess. That's, you know, one of the motifs of the show, I'd say.
0: You know, I, I'm trying to come up with something. I don't want to keep you from where you're going. But there was something that hit me about the Lucy Butler name. It was almost like something that reminded me of a name that came up as a uh, satanic personage. Oh, really? Uh, man. Oh, you know what wow. I think it might be? It wasn't i'm sorry well i'll get a bunch of emails and we'll get this straight now but in that movie the crossroads which goes back to that obviously you know robert johnson mm-hmm. and that hound, you know hound dogs of uh of heaven and all this stuff or, or on the trail but i forget what it is but anyway what i'm saying is there was a character that that you know probably i think gave his soul to be able to be one of the best guitarists and i think his name was jack butler
1: is that right
0: Okay. See, something hit me when I heard Lucy Butler. I went, ooh, I've heard this before. <laughs> and that, that movie is back from the mid-'80s with um, Ralph, Ralph Macchio. Macchio. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think the guy that he dealt, dealt uh, you know, Godarlicks g- with was a satanic personage by the name of Jack Butler. So I'm wondering if this was a wink and a nod, or if maybe I'm even, you know, maybe somehow, some way, John, like, Butler or that name or something might go back through ages right. as being folklore
1: Be associated with Yes, it. with uh, something
0: I, satanic or dark.
1: Oh I should I should look it up I you know, I looked up sort of the you know derivative for the word butler and just came up with the idea of servant, you know and
0: Yeah, but who's servant? Like, exactly. Satan.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. Right. So you know, and I love that Lucy Butler character. She's she Ooh. she's Ooh. amazing. She she's uh she she's a terrifying uh, person, and, and and you know, and the way they made her terrifying was that the first half of her first introductory episode, they set up this uh, other serial killer who was in surgery as like the ultimate you know badass. That he right. was the most you know terrible guy in creation. Um, some really, I can't remember. He was a doctor. He was he was sort of a Hannibal Lecter type character. I mean, really horrible person.
0: Yes, he was right.
1: And then in the last half of the episode, like he, he was like a screaming child, you know, a crying child compared to Lucy Butler. You know, he, he, he didn't, uh, he thought he was true evil until he met her. And then, he, you know, he looked in the face of what real evil was. Um,
0: yeah, and, you know, know and she, she, they did that character again so well because here's two things. One, you want to punch her out because <laughs> she's such a snot and she's so on top of it. But then, right. again, as, as, as it would be scripturally, you cannot, you cannot duke with the devil. So, if you're being lured into that, you've lost your head and you've been gotten. And that's right. why I think she played such a good role because she was just almost. And, and he, re, you know, for the most part, Frank resisted that because he realized if you try to make it a flesh and, you know, a flesh and blood thing right. instead of a principality of darkness, you're going to get caught, and you're going to get turned into mulch.
1: Yep, yep, and he 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 tangles with her three times, and her stories each year are among the the I think the best and you know most provocative of uh, of the Millennium stories. You know, it, it's very interesting. I think that Millennium focused so much on what is human evil. You know, what is you know what is the the most horrible you know things humans can do, and then it, it took this tour into. You know, suggesting like what you said. You know, more spiritual uh, evil. Um, uh, the, with Lucy Butler, and 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 certainly in later seasons, season two and three, there was much more openness uh, and forthrightness about confronting what you might call the supernatural realm. I guess um, you know, the the first season is very much grounded, I would say, more in reality. Um, you know, and and you know, I don't know if it was because there, there was pressure to move in a more X Files type direction or what, but the show became less, um, you know, less about those that human evil and 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 to some extent more about um, you know supernatural evil at points. Right
0: now, did, did you find anything where uh, it was planned ahead of time that this would only be a three-year series?
1: No, no. In fact. Um, when you know when we get to the second season we can talk about but they thought that was the end. You know, the second season ended um with absolute apocalypse, the end of the world. Um and, and they could because they thought they weren't gonna be renewed for a third season. And then there was a surprise renewal for the third season um, and I know everybody, myself included, because I, I was I, I was on board at that point. Uh, you know, was hoping you know for a fourth season to take us right up to the year two thousand. I mean, they, you know, I you know sometimes you wonder what networks are thinking, but to for Fox to cancel a show called Millennium um, on the eve of the millennium and not have it airing, you know, through most of you know nineteen ninety nine into two thousand, you know, it just seems you know.
0: Well, that that, that was one dumb. of two curious things they did because they gassed Millennium which I don't know was was not finding favor with the uh, viewership, and he also gassed Lone gun,
1: Right, right.
0: And that thing was doing fine. And, and uh, one of the uh, actors, the one that played the uh, the blonde-haired fella, whose name escapes me right now, right. Uh, was saying that he was surprised, too, because the show left at the height of its popularity, and that was a brief run also. And that, that adds also to the whole mysteriousness about Chris Carter and the Fox Network and showing these shows that... Um, have a leg both supposedly reality and also in the conspiracy, which to me is reality as well. But uh, that's really rich that it seems to be under Carter's aegis, and it's uh, on Fox. So in right. any way, uh, yeah, that and Lone Gunman uh, die what we would call premature deaths, I think.
1: Well, I think so, too, and, you know, the. the uh, I think, you know, you and I have talked about the lone gunman pilot, which, you know, basically mm-hmm. g- gave you the how, the why, and the who of the nine eleven attack, right. you know, not nine months earlier or so. Um, you know, I watched that recently, and it's astounding. It's astounding, you think.
0: Yeah, well, I agree. You know, I mean, I you know, I don't take you into my world necessarily, but there are some things I think you can't deny are beyond interesting, and, and that certainly was one of them.
1: Right, right. Well, you know, it it, it is really, um, you know, frightening. You know, the, the idea of the conspiracy in Millennium, for instance, um, you know, there, there was there was that sort of, you know, in Lone Gunman, there was that, you know, government conspiracy to take down the towers, you know, basically to boost arms sales. Um, there are a lot of, uh, you know, there, there's a very interesting sort of conspiracy, I guess, in, in Millennium, this notion of uh, releasing... You know the government, or an arm of the government. Uh, you know this group. You know, linked to the government, releasing a um, a disease. Uh, you know, into the general general populace. You know, and certainly we we've also seen that happen. I mean, thank God it wasn't a you know airborne uh, Ebola disease like in Millennium uh, in their second season. But you know, we 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 also had you know in recent years we had the anthrax attack. You know, um, this and the yeah. Yeah, and and people, you know, again, not to go too far into conspiracy theories, but I, th- I think it's been pretty much confirmed at this point that the anthrax that was used to uh, poison, you know, those unfortunate Americans could only have been produced in American government, government labs. Right. Right. right you, so. you know
0: what I found interesting also is I believe it was in the first show uh, something that was said that I just uh, hooked onto, and I guess it's one of the only times he really talks uh, about the Millennium Group or when he says, when he's asked, I guess, what they're about or something like that, and he said something to the effect of they got tired of waiting for a happy ending. Do you remember right. that? Yes, yeah. I thought that was Fair. kind of telling Let me ask you this. Uh, can you tell us anything about uh, the intro where we see the three words? What was it? Wait, worry, who cares?
1: Right. Uh, well, I mean, you know, the the opening montage of Millennium with with that beautiful violin score from yep. Mark Snow is, you know, it, it, it's a it's a great piece of film. You know, in and of itself, um, and again, it's it, it's rife with with images and and not subliminal because you can you know you read them. They're not flashing on and registering. You know, subconsciously. I mean, we're seeing them, but but you know how, how these images play in our mind is very interesting. You, if you look at that opening, you not only are those you know those words you know flashed up, but there's the there's an image that looks it looks like a little girl walking on the edge of a roof, and a little girl yep. looks a little like Jordan. Well, she looks a lot like Jordan, Frank's daughter, but it's not Frank's daughter. And then there's, like, a shadowy woman, a silhouette of a woman who looks like Catherine, and she sort of slumps yeah. her shoulders down, but but it's not exactly Catherine. I mean, it, it, it's very surreal. It's very... It, it seems very, like, much like dream imagery. And, I, and you know, I I think the the wait and worry part, um, you know, is, is certainly the idea of you know, the millennium is coming, and you know, people think the millennium represents the end of the world. So wait and worry, and you know, who cares? I mean, that's you know, that's an that's a really yeah. interesting one because yeah. I mean, what is it saying? Americans are asleep. I mean, who you know, we don't have we don't have time to worry about the end of the world because you know a new walmart opened you know
0: (laughs) oh yeah and and, i mean this is something that you're not usually prepared for because this was cynical to the max and that doesn't necessarily make it wrong but it's yeah you know wait worry well why would you tell somebody to do that and then eventually the third w who cares right and that does change later on too i believe in the last year
1: right you know the interesting thing about who cares is that if we take that as a you know, as a as a question, and, you know, one one general the question, you know, the general idea is, who cares? Does anybody care? But the the other interpretation of that is, who cares? Well, you know, Frank cares, and at some point in the series, it begins to develop the mythology of Frank. Um, I don't want to say being the catcher in the rye, but kind of being mm-hmm. the, uh, a shepherd. That he he is the person who who is you know gathering the flock and trying to to hold us together and get us somewhere positive. Um, and the thing is, he doesn't even know that he can do it. I think he says in the pilot, um, you know, his wife says to him in the pilot episode of the first season, you know, you can't, you know, make the darkness go away. I'm paraphrasing wildly. And he says, well, I'd like you I'd like you to pretend that I can. You know, he, he he's a very interesting character like that. Is that he's, he, he's trying to keep all of us from sort of going over this dark cliff, um, yet also consciously aware that, you know he, he can't do it by himself, and you know maybe the the answer to who cares is is Frank Black, but but that that's a difficult answer because Frank Black of course is fictional, right? you know. Um, it, but, it, but it's interesting.
0: No, but, but that show you cannot walk away from saying well it's bogus. It that right. really doesn't happen. You couldn't do that. See that's I think the unsettling thing that made it all so good, and that is you would like at the end of the show, just like what what Frank said, is pretend that it, it, it's it's okay. Right. But the show left you with the idea, it isn't okay.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, which is, again, I mean, you know, I have to sort of slap myself and say, you know, I just wasn't with it in the 90s enough to understand what the show was doing. For me, I thought, you know, the show was just so unremittingly grim, you know, when I first watched it. And, and, you know, and then I realized later on when I watched it, you know, not only how artistic it was, but how brave it was to to, to have your heroic character admit in the first episode that he can't really make a difference but but he's still going to try i mean you don't get that in your average cop show you don't get that level of honesty um and and bluntness and candidness um from most from most television i mean even most genre television you don't you know science fiction or horror i mean the really good ones will do it but, you know, for Millennium to take that stance uh, to say, you know, I really can't change the world, but, you know, will you pretend that I can? I mean, I, I, I don't know if it's cynical or just very honest. <laughs> well, yeah, it's true.
0: Well, yeah, <laughs> I mean, sometimes cynicism is the, the, the greatest form of reality. There's no two ways about it. Um, you know, it doesn't make you wrong. It's one of those situations. Uh, we're coming up uh, near the end of the show. Uh, is there anything else, John, you want to share with us or? Well, I
1: just want to say I think you know I, I, I'm in, I, I'm so much enjoying the chance to to go back and and look at Millennium with you again, and I hope that your listeners, if they get the chance, will will go back and watch some of these episodes and some of the ones that I could recommend if you don't want to do you know all twenty four, but to pick up on some of the ones we talked about. Again, their titles are Lamentation. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that's the the one with Lucy Butler, the pilot, of course, which introduces Frank's world. Um, weeds, which is the one set in the gated community uh, Loin Like a Hunting Flame, which is when we talked about sexual dysfunction um, and, then, and then say, give everybody some homework to go look at the second season Because the next time we meet, we'll get to discuss about where Millennium went to um, in its sophomore season And I, I think that'll be an interesting conversation
0: All right, we've been talking with John Kenneth Muir The website is his name, com. We're talking about Millennium, we're going to do about two more shows Perhaps one live afterwards, and you can find out uh, all that he's written about that show in his book. Uh, is it, It's Terror Television, is that right? That's right, Terror Television. All right, John, thanks for being with us, and we'll catch you in about a week or so. Thank you. I'm looking
1: forward to it. All right, thanks,
0: John. Bye-bye now. You.
1: Okay, bye-bye.